Our God and Father, we are so grateful that you are God in heaven, that, Lord, you sit on your throne, the earth is but your footstool, that you hold the whole world in your hands, and that, indeed, you are in control. God, we praise you. We bless your holy name, and we thank you for all of your goodness to us. We thank you for the privilege that we have to know you through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his precious blood. We thank you for his sacrifice to bring us to you and to reconcile our relationship so that we can now be restored to you, even be adopted into your family as sons and daughters. God, we thank you. We thank you for your blessed Holy Spirit who lives in our hearts, who daily conforms us into the image of Jesus and helps us to be more like him. We thank you for all the good things that you're doing in our life as you sanctify us and cleanse us and and uh, as you cause us to uh, partake of your divine nature. We are so grateful, God, for the joy and the peace that you bring to us. We're so grateful for the hope that we have of your soon coming kingdom. God, for the hope that we have of eternal life in heaven with you when there shall no longer be any more mourning or crying or dying or pain and when the old order of things shall pass away and all things shall be made new. God, we thank you for that great hope. And I pray for any who are downcast today that they would not be downcast but that they would put their hope in you, God. Lord, that they would trust that you are indeed in control and that they would look to you to be their refuge and their strength even their joy in the time of suffering. We thank you for all that you are. We honor and we praise you this day. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so we've been in a series on the gospel of Jesus Christ since September. And so we're talking about the gospel, which is the message... of the good news of Christ. Amen? Amen. The gospel is the message about Christ. Amen? Amen. And so, uh, of course, we summed that up early on as four main points, right? God, man, Christ, response. And so at its core, the gospel really is about these four basic categories or basic points, right? God created the world. God created mankind. Mankind sinned against God and has fallen into bondage to decay. He's fallen into sin and death. God sent Christ to be a propitiation for our sins and to live a perfect life of righteousness so that we can uh, have that righteousness imputed to us and have our relationship reconciled to God. The way that we receive Christ is through faith which God gives to us and we call this the response and, and we believe with the faith that God gives us and that faith looks like repentance from sin And it also looks like trust in Christ. Amen? And if you will, those are the kind of the basic elements of faith, although there's more to it, obviously. But uh, God, man, Christ, 
response. The gospel. Good news of Jesus Christ. Okay? So, <clears throat> recently we've been talking about the doctrine of justification now for about six weeks. And when we talk about the doctrine of justification, you, you may have heard me being rather repetitive because we've kind of come at this thing from several different angles, starting with a discussion about church history and the, the, uh, the Reformation. We talked at length about the Protestant Reformation because the controversies that were going on in the Reformation were really at the heart of what the gospel is specifically dealing with the doctrine of justification, and so that when those controversies were resolved through the Protestant Reformation, what, what happened was there was a highlighting of those essential elements of the gospel, right? Remember that? And, and that we talked about were the five solas, right? So basically that scripture is the only authority for the life and practice of the church and for the understanding of what the faith, the Christian faith really is, right? And then that salvation happens by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, right? And then lastly, all of those things are specifically for the purpose of the glory of God. Soli Deo Gloria, right? For God's glory alone. Amen? And so, <clears throat> as we talked about justification from that perspective, then we kind of went on in on talking about the nature of, of justification and what it is. And the reason for this is because justification is the heart of the gospel. Okay? It's the central issue at, 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 at stake in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Justification is the thing that happens that is, if you will, the mechanics of what restores our relationship to God. Justification is the thing that Christ did for us that God gives to us that restores our relationship with him, okay? And so, if you will, we've kind of looked at this thing from several different angles, but I'm thinking that today is going to be our last discussion about it, so some of this is going to be rather repetitive, some of it not so repetitive, but uh, if you will, we're going to talk about the nuts and bolts of justification, what it is, and what the basis of justification is, okay? And so, with that, I'm going to run off down the road here talking about justification. And I'm going to be starting on page 104, right near the top where uh, it, it says in the second paragraph there, it is clear from Scripture. Okay, so basically justification, I'm kind of going to break it down into these four categories, which are propitiation, expiation, imputation, and that brings about reconciliation. Okay? So the first three are kind of the nuts and bolts about what it is, and then uh, reconciliation is what it produces. Okay? And this is, uh, this is, if you will, kind of the basic elements of justification. So let's talk about it. It's clear from Scripture that in the death of Christ upon the cross, that God's wrath because of sin has been satisfied by Christ's payment of death. This is called propitiation. And so here, here's what we're saying is that God's wrath because of sin has been satisfied. Okay? So <clears throat> we have the issue here of God.
God's wrath because of sin has been satisfied. This we call propitiation. Okay? So what we have is this basic element that when man sinned against God, okay, it brought about God's wrath, God's holy displeasure with sin. And the consequences of sin from God toward man are what? Death. The wages of sin is death, which is defined as, somebody tell me, separation from God eternally. Okay? Which is only temporally pictured in physical death. Okay? Physical death is just a type, if you will, of eternal death. Okay? Which is the reality of God's consequence or His wrath towards sin. Okay? And, and if you will, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. True? And all are, if you will, in the same boat together under the wrath of God because of sin, right? And so there is this holy zeal, this holy wrathful displeasure from God towards sin, which, which, which is actually toward man who has committed the offense and committed the sin. And the consequences, therefore, are death. And so, if you will, um, because Jesus was without sin, he was qualified to pay the debt for all sin by his death. Okay? Now, what are we saying? We're saying that Jesus had no sin in and of himself. So that when he gave his life, okay, the payment of that had infinite value. It had, it, it had value enough to cover the debt for all sins. Okay? That's why John would make the statement that that the propitiation of Christ is not only for, for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. What is he saying? He's saying that the, the, the value of the debt of Christ is sufficient to pay the debt for all sin in every age from every person. Okay? So, if you will, Christ was qualified to pay the debt for all sin by his death. He died as a substitute or in the place of sinners and bore the wrath of God himself, not dying for his own sins, but for the sins of all who would trust him. Okay? In other words, the value or the benefit of Christ's propitiation is only available to those who trust him for it. Amen? So in that sense... We cannot say that Christ died in the same sense for everybody in the world because the, the benefits of that death only come to those who have faith. Amen? Amen. Okay, so we, we go on here. The sac this sacrifice of atonement, that is, the death of Christ, affected a real and fundamental change in our relationship to God by taking our place and bearing the guilt of our sins as an offering to appease the holy wrath of God. Here's what we're saying. Jesus' death on the cross affected a real change. It, 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 it accomplished something that was real. Okay? And here in this context, we're talking about propitiation. We're talking about a satisfaction of the wrath of God. And what we're saying is, is that there is this real wrath of God. Look around. The consequence of death is for all to see. Okay? And what we're saying is, is that Christ's death on the cross 
is a real satisfaction of the wrath of God. Okay? So that when that death is applied, the wrath then is propitiated. Okay? And here, again, propitiation is from Christ toward God. It's not toward man. God is the one who is propitiated in justification. God is the one who is propitiated by the sacrifice of of Christ. Okay? It's God's holy displeasure with sin, which we call his wrath, that gets satisfied by the death of Christ in propitiation. Okay? So, Hebrews 2.17 would say, Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And so here's what Christ did. He made a propitiation. What does that mean? He made a satisfaction. He made an appeasement. So God has holy displeasure towards sin. That holy displeasure from God is, 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 is satisfied in the death of Christ. It's like a fire having water dumped on it. It quenches the flames. Okay? The flames of God's holy displeasure towards sin are quenched by the death of Christ. Okay? He died as a sacrifice to pay that debt which is owed to God and to cancel out, if you will, the thing which made God angry with sin. Okay? And so propitiation is an appeasement or a satisfaction of the wrath of God towards sin and toward man. Okay? In this propitiation, it is in this propitiation that God, in his requirement of divine justice, is actually propitiated. Now, understand something. God is angry with sin... And rightfully so. Amen? What should be the right response from God about sin? He should be angry. And he should express wrath. Right? How do we know that? Well, because when we look at God, we see that he's angry and he's expressed wrath. What does that tell us? That tells us that's what is right. Because God is the only righteous one. He is the definition and the standard for what righteousness is. So when we look at how God is and how God behaves, we see a manifestation of what is good and what is righteous. Okay? Why is God angry towards sin? Because He's good. And He hates evil. Okay? The opposite of evil is what? Good. Okay? And so when evil is manifested in God's creation, He's angry. That's the right response. Why? Because He's good. And goodness is an antinomy to evil, okay? God is opposed to evil. He's not evil in any way, shape, or form. On on the contrary, he's the antithesis of that. He's good. So when evil happens, God is responding with wrath. He's responding with anger and judgment. And this is what we call justice, right? The wages of sin is death, and that is divine justice. That's the right thing that ought to happen. Amen? I mean, if you've got a rebel loose in the territory and he's out there running around killing and slaughtering people, what are you going to do? Are you going to go uh, you know, pat him on the hand and say, now don't you do that again? Yeah. You with me? You understand? 
Something needs to be done. What needs to be done? Well, you need to exercise some righteousness. You need to exercise some justice. Right? Somebody came along and killed your child. Would you, would you want justice to be carried out? Would you want that justice to be speedy? Would you want it to be uh, according to the crime? You would, wouldn't you? Right, and that's because why? Well, because you're good. And you don't like your, your child being killed. <laughs> you don't like murder. You don't like that kind of crime that someone commits against you. Amen? It hurts. Are you with me? And so, if you will, God has this holy displeasure with sin. And because of that, he's exercising divine judgment. And that divine judgment comes to us in the form of death. The wages of sin, the payment for sin is death. Well, because God has instituted the sacrificial system as a means of atonement, he has therefore been pleased to have a sacrifice appease or satisfy his wrath. Propitiation is an appeasement or a satisfaction. The holy anger and wrath of God towards sin demands a satisfaction of justice and his vengeance is enraged towards sin and must have a subject to inflict the good and righteous penalty of death. For Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, we must have a substitute to satisfy God's wrath or... Be consumed ourselves. You understand? Now here's this predicament that we're in. You've sinned against God. And God's only righteous response to your sin is the consequence of death. So here's this deal. Either you are going to die eternally for your sins or some other substitute is going to take that death for you. And that's what the cross is all about. Christ is a sacrifice of atonement to cover over that sin that you committed and to bear the penalties of that sin in his own body so that the actual justice of God is poured out. His wrath is poured out, but not on you. Instead, poured out on Christ. That's why he is the Christ. That's why he was anointed by God to come and to give his life as a sacrifice of atonement. Amen? And that sacrifice is that God gives his son in death so that you can go free in life. What is the sacrifice? Jesus. Jesus is the sacrifice himself. Amen? And this is exactly how the Bible describes it. And this is what sets Christianity apart from every other world religion. Okay, let me tell you something. Buddha didn't die for your sins. Neither did Krishna. Neither did Muhammad. Okay, there's only one Lamb of God. His name is Jesus Christ, and it is He who takes away the sins of the world. Are you with me? And, and uh, not only that, but there isn't anything you can do to take away your own sins. The only thing that you can do about your sins is die. Because that's the right payment. That's the just payment of divine justice towards sin. Okay, so Christ has to die as a sacrifice for your sins if you're going to go free. Somebody has to pay the wages of sin. Because God is holy. 
God is just and he is going to mete out those consequences for that sin. He's going to make sure it happens. Okay? So then, Jesus Christ is the only sufficient substitute who can meet the just requirements of God's law, his divine justice, in order to die vicariously, that is, for us, as a substitute in our place. Okay? Christ died as a sacrifice in our place. And he died personally for us. Jesus died for Sean because I trust in him. Are you with me? And I even that I do by the sovereign grace of God. Amen? Amen. So then, Jesus becomes then this propitiation himself to appease the wrath of God. Now get this. In 1 John 4.10, this is what it says. It says, In this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now here's what the Bible is saying. That God sent His Son to be the propitiation for sins. Now back in Hebrews it said that He made propitiation. And it was talking about the work of Christ, what He did. He satisfied God's wrath. But let me tell you, it wasn't just what He did. Jesus Himself is the Lamb who had to die. Him in His person. He was the propitiation. He was the sacrifice. Are you with me? Let me give you a a vivid picture from the Bible of that. Abraham and Isaac are walking up the mountain. And they're, they're, you know, uh, Isaac's packing the wood, right? And he says, uh, you know, Father, uh, I have the wood here. Where's the sacrifice? Get the picture? Isaac is starting to scratch his head as he walk up that mountain. Where's the lamb? You understand? Jesus is that son who's going to the mountain to be sacrificed because he is the lamb that God provided. You with me? It's a very personal thing. Christ himself died as the sacrifice. He is, as John says, 1 John 4.10, the propitiation for our sins. Notice here that this propitiation is not only what Christ did, the work of Christ, but that Jesus Christ himself, the person of Christ, is the propitiation for our sins. The New Testament words normally translated as propitiation are the Greek words hilasterion, that's from Romans 3.24, and halasmos, that's from 1 John 4.10. And carry with them the idea of expiation, that is to remove the offense or guilt, or to cover over. In fact, these Greek terms actually hold a more personal meaning to the means of expiation, namely of an atoning victim. Okay, so when, when, when Paul writes in Romans 3 and he says that God put forth Christ as a propitiation, okay, What he's saying is God put forth Christ as the atoning victim to die and satisfy his own wrath. Okay? Jesus himself was victimized. Jesus himself bore the penalty of wrath in our place, in our stead, as a sacrifice. Okay? As a substitute. Jesus stood in our place as a substitute. 
Okay? This is important to understand. This idea that Jesus is the atoning victim, the propitiatory sacrifice, means that Jesus paid a very real price. He literally bore the penalty for our sins. Our chastisement for sin, our chastisement became his. He carried our griefs and our sorrows. This was beautifully expressed by Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 53. Isaiah 53, 4 and following there, Isaiah writes of the coming uh, Messiah and what he will do. He says, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. He himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. You understand? You see how many times it says, He, He bore our griefs, He bore our sorrows, He was crushed, right? Jesus Himself died as the atoning victim for sin. It's a very personal thing. You remember how last year when we were talking about the atonement, and I was describing to you that on the day of the atonement, the family heads would all bring a sacrificial lamb to the priest to sacrifice for the sins of their family. Recall that? And when they did that, I noted that it wasn't the priest that killed that lamb. It was that father. He had to take that lamb and he had to take that knife and he had to kill that lamb. And that was a very personal thing. That lamb was dying if you will, in that Jewish ceremony to cover over the sins of that family. And if you will, this was a representation of them looking forward to Christ. But the fact of the matter is, it was a very personal thing when that father took that knife and he drove it into the neck of that lamb. Are you with me? Yes, yes ma'am. Hadn't the lamb also been living with them in the house for a I remember something like that. I can't verify that, so I'm I'm gonna go neutral on that. <laughs> well, I think it is very personal. Anybody who's raised livestock, you know, you know, we all know our our livestock well. Even if you have a lot of them, I've been in families like that and with them and and seen how they have relationships with them. But let me tell you, it's a very personal thing. And this is the idea of of Christ's death being vicarious. It's for us. It's for us personally. We should never think of ourselves as detached from Jesus himself bearing our sins and our iniquities in his own body. He died for me personally, and he died for you personally. Amen? And if you will, he is the atoning victim that satisfied the wrath of God for me. 
He died in my place as a sacrifice for me. He was my substitute. Are you with me? And he was your substitute if you trust in him. Therefore, the atonement does in fact satisfy God's holy wrath towards sin because it is God's own work graciously creating the means for us to be justified and his holy wrath to be appeased. Do you understand? God sent Christ. Why? To be a propitiation for sins. So that when Christ came and he offered himself as a sacrifice of atonement, what do you suppose he accomplished? Exactly that. He accomplished the atonement. It is finished, right? The payment is paid to tell us die. Are you with me? What Jesus did, he did because the Father sent him to do it, and he carried it out perfectly. And when he did that, let me tell you, he satisfied the wrath of God. He made propitiation. I think I spelled that right. Okay? He made propitiation in his death toward God and appeased and satisfied the wrath of God toward sin. Isn't it important to note what Abraham's response to Isaac was? Sure. Mm -hmm. On the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. As a matter of fact, that's what they named that place. Right? And, and so the idea is, is that Isaac didn't have to sacrifice his son, right? But God provided a sacrifice. Amen? Same thing pictured all through the Old Testament. Even Adam and Eve, right? Adam, guilty Adam is hiding in the bushes. With shame. Terrible sin broken his relationship with loving God of, of whom he enjoyed sweet, sweet fellowship with every day. And there's Adam hiding from God now. Right? And God comes. And God covers the shame of Adam and Eve's nakedness by the sacrifice, by the shedding of blood. Right? This is pictured in the animal skins that God used to cover the shame of their nakedness. Are you with me? This, of course, the sacrificial system is all through the Old Testament. It's all pointing to Christ. And when he got here, guess what? It is finished. He did make propitiation. All of this was designed in eternity by God. And it was implemented by him in the course of history because of the great love that he wished to express to us in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, for instance, 1 Peter 1.18 and following would say, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ... For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. You see what it says there? That Christ was foreknown to be the Christ from the foundation of the world, from the time when God created the world. He knew, right? He had in this idea of foreknowledge, right, is actually the choosing and election of God. Christ is the elect lamb who died, right? The agreement between the Son and the Father in eternity past. Right? The covenant of grace. 
right? God's knowledge is perfect, even God the Son. And as he exists eternally with the Father, he, he realizes he is the elect lamb that will enter into time and space incarnate as a man and give his life as a sacrifice for sins. Amen? He was foreknown from the foundation of the world, right? But he was appeared in these last times for the sake of you. You see, Jesus showed up so that he could die for you and that he could die for me. Amen? Glorious truth. He carried out the Father's plan perfectly, family. What God had planned from eternity, he brought to pass in the course of history in Christ. Amen? Mm-hmm. That's what they understand. Uh-huh. You know, and it is a wonderful way. Yeah. Yeshua is our atonement for right. sin. And what is their atonement? Yeah, Jews who, Jews who understand Judaism and Jews who understand the scriptures, yes, absolutely. <laughs> There's a lot of Reformed Jews, if you will. You, you talk to them about the Bible, and it's, it's kind of like liberal Christianity. They, you know, they don't even have a clue what the Bible says. And so I just wanted to qualify that because I was recently talking with somebody who was ministering to a Jew right down this alley, talking to them about how Christ was the sacrifice and all the Old Testament was pointing to him. And the guy's scratching his head like, what in the world are you talking about? You know, because he doesn't even know the, the, the Old Testament. And, uh, but, of course, if you know your Old Testament well, it is a tremendous tool in witnessing to Jews. Amen? Just like Paul did. On a regular basis. He'd go to the synagogue and he would preach Christ from the Old Testament. Amen? Okay, so then. But propitiation is not the only thing that justification is. Not only has God's wrath been appeased, but the actual guilt of sinners has been removed by Christ's payment because he paid the full price of that guilt. This is called expiation. Okay, this is called expiation. So... Here's another word for us. Expiation. Jesus removed our guilt, having paid the full price of redemption for our sins. Christ made a fundamental change in our relationship with God by expiating our guilt. You understand what this means, family? That you don't have to bear the weight of guilt upon your conscience for sin. That's what it means. When, when Jesus says, he who the Son sets free, he sets free indeed, let me tell you what he means. He means that he's washing your conscience so that you don't have to bear the weight and the guilt of sin. Are you with me? You understand? Jesus paid that price. He paid it in full. He's taken away the guilt. The guilt no longer remains. It doesn't mean that you're not guilty. It doesn't mean you didn't commit the sins. It means that the consequences of the sins have been fully satisfied so that the guilt no longer has any consequence. Therefore, you can't bear the weight of it any longer. Are you with me? This is what expiation is, and this is another thing that happens in justification. It's a fundamental change in our relationship with God. Okay? We're no longer a guilty sinner in the presence of God. Okay? Now we're a son (laughs) <laughs> you get the picture? Now, I'm going to use the prodigal son as an example. Now, that son, he went out, he squandered the father's inheritance, he went out with riotous living, right? And he got there in the pig pen in the mud of the world, and he, he, he sinned against the father a uh, uh, hundred times over, 
Right? But when he comes home, what does the father do? Right? He, the first thing he does, the father runs to receive him because he was watching for the son. Right? And when the son gets there, the father rejoices and runs to the son and embraces the son and loves him. Right? And receives him as a son. And he says, put a ring on his finger. In other words, restore my blessing of my house to this my son. Right? Clean him up and put a robe on him. Right? Clean him up so that he's presentable to the family once again. Right? Now I want you to see where is the guilt of that son pictured in that picture? Nowhere. It's under the robe. It's all covered. Are you with me? And what has the father done? He's reconciled that son. He's reconciled that son perfectly so that he's received right back into the family and right back into the blessing of the father's house. Amen? And the father is overjoyed. And the son is repentant and humbled before the father. Father, I'll be like one of your hired servants. If only I could come near once again. Right? Glorious picture there. Glorious picture of expiation. Right? In expiation, our guilt has been removed by meeting the demands of holy justice for sin. The offense of our sins has been absorbed by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus for us, and the requirements of God's justice for sin have been canceled out. Now, I want to use some biblical terminology for you here. The consequences of sin, the requirements of God's justice for sin have been canceled out. Colossians 2. Verses 13 and following. And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, listen, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, and which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. You see what's being said here? That in Christ, we have had canceled out the certificate of debt consisting in decrees against us. Now, what's he talking about? What is this uh, certificate of debt consisting in decrees against us? Somebody tell me. God's wrath because of? Our sin because of? Transgressing the law. Okay. The certificate of debt is what? What are these decrees against us? Right? They're all the preceptive requirements of God that he wrote in his law that you didn't carry out. When God said, love your neighbor as yourself, and instead you neglected your neighbor. When God said, don't profane my name. Don't take my name in vain. Don't have any other gods before me. Right? When he said, don't lie, don't steal, don't commit adultery. When he said, honor your father and your mother. And a hundred times you dishonored your father and your mother. You racked up a, 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 a debt <laughs> consisting of decrees against you. What decrees? All those ones I just recited to you and another 625 more <laughs> that are written in the law that you haven't fulfilled. That has enraged the wrath of God. Okay? The law has decrees against us that are hostile to us. Look what Christ has done. 
He has canceled them out. How? By fulfilling this law. Christ fulfilled that law perfectly. And all of the debt that you racked up, look what it says. The certificate of debt. You know what that is, right? That's like a promissory note. You go to the bank and you borrow a thousand bucks to go buy a car. You owe the bank a thousand bucks, don't you? Right? The wages of sin is death. When you sin, you rack up a penalty, a debt, which is what? Death. Right? And so now we owe this certificate of debt consisting in decrees against us. But look what Christ has done. He's canceled it out. He's taken it out of the way. It's gone. He's taken it out of the way. How? Having nailed it to the cross. You understand? The debt that you owed, he paid. It's paid in full. The decrees that were hostile towards you, that were against you, that you had racked up, consisting of decrees against us, look, it's taken out of the way. There's no longer any guilt. The guilt has been paid. The the guilt, the consequences of your guilt have been paid by Christ. This is expiation. The penalty deserved in our guilt has been paid in full by the sacrifice of Christ. This is to say that the atonement is redemptive. That it pays the price required by justice. Okay? So, here's the deal, people. You need to understand how, how powerful this is. What we're saying is, all of your sin, God didn't just wipe it away and say, I forgive you. It wasn't just some benevolent thing in the mind of God where he said, oh, you know, I think I'm just going to forgive your sins. Let me tell you something. Divine justice was met out and paid in the body of Jesus. God punished Christ for your sins. It's called penal substitutionary atonement in theology. It's a penalty. Christ died as a substitute, taking the penalty of your sins to cover over your sins. Penal substitutionary atonement. Okay? It's a real thing that happened. Christ paid the the debt for sins. Okay? So that your sins have been wiped away. They've been taken out of the way. They've been canceled out, the scripture says. Okay? The debt that you owed, which was death, has been taken out of the way. There's no longer any consequence for your guilt. And it's on this basis, right, that God grants us the forgiveness of all of our sins. He didn't just wipe them off. Christ paid the penalty for them. Yes, Mike? Well, are you talking about with the civil authorities or with God? Yeah, well, of course. The, the, the law of the civil authorities is, is going to be upheld and governed by that law, whatever it is. So you mean a guy could be on the hangman's noose and that's your, that your idea? Uh-huh. Sure, absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, 
But the fact of the matter is, whatever those sins may be, whether they be as heinous as murder, right? Or, or something that we might think of as far less offensive, like dishonoring our parents in some way, right? Both of which in the law of God had the sentence of death, right? Uh, you understand? A, a child, in the law of God, a child is disobedient to his parents. You know what they do? Take him outside the city and stone him. So, <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it speaks to us about the severity of sin. You know, we, 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 we think sin is such a light thing. You know, the whole secular world makes such light of sin. And, and we don't understand it the way God understands it, okay? We don't see it the way God sees it. Hell is a very real thing. And it's a very hot place. And eternity is a very long time, family. Let me tell you something. God is not playing games with sin. Are you with me? It's a serious matter. It's so serious that the Son of God had to come from heaven to give His life and die for it. Amen? And so it's something we need to understand. This is the gospel that we preach. We tell people that sins... God is offering to cancel out their sins and to take away the penalty of death and give them eternal life. And it's on the basis of the fact that Jesus actually died as a sacrifice in their place and as a substitute for them. Amen? That we call expiation. Jesus' death on the cross is seen as a ransom price paid to redeem us from the penalties of the law the certificate of debt consisting in decrees against us that we owed to God because of sin. As it says in 1 Timothy 2, 5 and following, there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony born at the proper time. And here Jesus is pictured as a ransom. It's redemptive. It's a price that's paid. Of course, redemption is a monetary term, right? And uh, Christ is seen as a ransom. This is why the scripture can say, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Having our guilt canceled, the corresponding condemnation for our sins has been removed. Look, if Christ bore the penalty for your sins in his body on the tree, and, and, and no longer does your guilt have any consequences left, that means there's no condemnation. God can't condemn you for anything else. Why? Because Christ was condemned in your place. There's a song that we sing. I can't remember the name of it, right? But where we talk about the fact that uh, I'm accepted. He was condemned. Are you with me? He was condemned. The condemnation that was due me fell upon Christ. Therefore, there's no condemnation for me. For the law, uh, uh, for for uh, uh, the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. Amen. Amen. You with me? He died in my place. He took my certificate of debt out of the way, having paid the ransom price for me, and now there's no condemnation for me. You understand? So, did Jesus just die for the sins that I committed before I was a Christian? No? How many sins did he die for? Really? So, let's see. You've been a Christian how long now? 
How many sins have you committed since you became a Christian? More than you can count on both hands and feet? Since last Friday? True. True, very true. Every one of those sins worthy of eternal death? Agreed? Right? Having canceled them out. Having paid the debt in full to Telestai. Paid for. No more guilt. Are you bearing the weight of the guilt of your sins? Let me tell you, go find a refuge at the cross. It is there where God will accept you. It is there where you will see the love of God manifested to you. And that that love of God will heal you from your desire to want to sin. You will find there such a sweet refuge and such a glorious relationship with God. The last thing in the world you will want to do is sin against Him. Are you with me? We are to take that cup of salvation and drink it in. Amen? Amen. Well, Jesus' death is the full payment price demanded by the law because of our violations of it. He redeemed us from the curse of the law. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Now what is the curse of the law? In the day you eat of that tree, ye shall surely die. Right? Look what it says. Having become a curse for us. For cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus became a curse for us. He bore the curse of the wrath of God on the tree in his own body. And he took the curse for me. Amen? It's been removed. I've been redeemed, the scripture says. The price to buy me back has been paid. All of this was done by God, who justifies. And this has removed our guilt and condemnation. As it says in Romans 8.33, Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? You get Paul's question? If God chooses to justify his church, who is going to bring a charge against them? Does somebody have higher authority than God? Shall some accuser come and bring a charge against those whom God has justified? Whom God has declared to be righteous? Not only that, he did it all on the basis of his law. He met the demands of divine justice in the person of Jesus so that, so that the, the requirements of justice have been fully met. So God's holy justice has been fully achieved, right? And the rich grace of God has been freely poured out to us who don't deserve it. Amen? Amen? It's glorious, glorious reality. However, there is still yet more to the basis of justification than propitiation and expiation. Having our guilt removed and God's wrath because of our sins satisfied, we still lack the positive righteousness required for us, required of us by God's law. You understand? So we sinned and we brought consequences. And Christ came and he died, okay? And he he satisfied that wrath of God. I'm sorry, I erased man here. We'll just draw man there. And, and then for us, look, he expiated our guilt. So he, he removed our guilt, right? He paid the decrees against us. Okay? 
So the penalties of our sins have all been fully satisfied. But what about the things that we haven't done that God has required us to do? Okay? See, we don't have any positive righteousness in the sight of God. We didn't, we didn't do what God said. On the contrary, right? So all those things where the law said, if you do this, you will surely die. Okay? Well, Christ paid all of those penalties. But what about where the law said, but you need to go do this, right? Your neighbor's donkey falls in the pit. You need to go help him out, right? You're walking down the road, and there's a beat-up Samaritan on the side of the road. You need to pick the guy up, take him up here, and get him healed, right? You need to love your neighbor as yourself. More than that, you need to love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. How oft have we failed? Are you with me? So all of this positive righteousness that we have failed to accomplish again and again and again, okay? Listen, Christ did for us in living a perfect life of fulfillment to the law for us. See, Jesus is the righteousness of God. He fulfilled every single preceptive requirement that God had in his law. Every single one. Jesus did love God with all of his heart and all of his soul and all of his mind and all of his strength. Right? Jesus did love his neighbor as himself. He carried out the law. And his life is filled with positive righteousness. You may recall that there are two kinds of sin. There is the transgression of the negative aspects of the law we call penal sanctions. Those are the thou shalt nots, right? And every time you commit a thou shalt not, then there is a wage or a penalty which is death, right? Those are the penal sanctions. Well, these transgressions or violations have been fully paid for by Christ's sacrifice. But, the law also has preceptive requirements whereby God expects us to fulfill certain precepts such as love your neighbor as yourself. We have sinned by failing to do this again and again. Therefore, it is necessary for God to provide for us a righteousness of fulfilled preceptive requirements because we have failed to fulfill them in order to have this positive righteousness before God. We have need of a foreign righteousness that is not our own, but is rather afforded to us by other means because we do not possess it in and of ourselves. In justification, God provides this righteousness to us by imputation. Okay? Here's another word now. Jesus gave his life in death. He also lived a perfect life of righteousness. He lived for me, and he died for me. When he died for me, he paid all the penal sanctions of the law that were held against me, the debt of decrees against me that was hostile to me. He paid them all right here when he died. Okay? But for all the times I failed to fulfill the precepts of God, Jesus lived for me. And he fulfilled every single precept that God ever had. And here's what God does in justification. He takes that righteousness that Christ has in his perfect life and he credits it to me on the basis of what Christ did. This is called imputation. So that now when we stand in the sight of God, we stand how? All our sins being paid for, no more condemnation and perfectly righteous in his sight 
for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. Remember the Westminster when we were talking about that? For the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. Okay? And so we call this imputation. In this imputation, God credits the righteousness of Christ to us. Jesus' perfect righteousness has become ours through faith in him. It is the merits of Christ perfectly fulfilling the perceptive requirements of the law that becomes ours in justification through imputation. This gives us positive righteousness in the sight of God. We can stand in God's presence, therefore, with the imputed righteousness and holiness of Christ. And so the scripture would say, 1 Corinthians 1.30, By his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us, Wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. What did Jesus become for us? He became our righteousness. He himself is our righteousness. The righteousness of Christ is ours. How about Romans 5, 18 and following? So then, through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, that is, through Adam's sin, right? Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Amen? How are we righteous in the sight of God? Through the obedience of the one. It's because of the merits of Christ that I am righteous in God's sight. Amen? This is a foreign righteousness. It's not a righteousness that I possess in and of myself. It's Christ's righteousness that is mine through imputation. Okay? 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now we're called the righteousness of God if we're in Christ. Amen? It's It's unbelievable. The, 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 the righteousness is so complete that we're actually called the righteousness of God. Amazing. Amazing. Therefore, when we say that the sinner is declared righteous by God, it is because the sinner is not actually righteous in himself, but in Christ has received a foreign righteousness which is not his own, but is from God in Christ. Since Jesus' life was one of sinless perfection, this righteousness which is received is also, therefore, perfect. Okay? Let me tell you something. The righteousness that we receive in Christ is a perfect righteousness in the sight of God. And this is how the scripture describes it. Philippians 3, 9 through 10. Paul, speaking of this foreign righteousness, he says, that I might be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. You understand what he's saying? Paul's saying, I don't have my own righteousness that I did by obeying the law, right? But I have the righteousness of God which comes to me through faith in Christ Jesus. You understand? Or, or like he says in Romans 3 there, verses 21 and following, but now... Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Listen, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. Right? The righteousness of God is Jesus. He's the manifest righteousness of God. And listen, for all those who believe, 
He becomes their righteousness for them. It's a foreign righteousness. All right? So this is the thing that we need to gather from that family. How complete is the reconciliation that God has accomplished in Christ for you? I mean, can you come into the Father's presence? Nothing between you and the Father. The answer is yes. Yes, you can. Why? Because all the requirements of divine justice have been met in Christ. Your guilt has been completely removed and Christ's perfect robe of righteousness has been put on you. So that now inside of God, salvation is complete. You've been made one again with the Father in Christ. So much so that you are now called the righteousness of God in Him. That is what Jesus accomplished in His perfect life and in His death on the cross. And when you trust in Him for righteousness before God, that's what you get. Are you with me? So this is why I keep telling you, the gospel's complete. Jesus is a real Savior who accomplished a real salvation that, that happened all by the design of God, according to God's requirements, so much so that it is absolutely perfect in what it accomplishes. In other words, you can trust Jesus to be righteous before God. God forbid you should count on your own righteousness. Because you're going to be sorely disappointed. Are you with me? You'll probably fail by the end of the day. But Christ never fails. Christ's righteousness is perfect. He's the eternal rock of refuge. Amen? He's a shelter. He's the strong tower we run into and we're saved. Right? Christ accomplished a perfect salvation, family. So that God justifies us in Christ. Here's what he does. On the basis of all that stuff that Jesus has done, God now says, I declare you to be righteous. So, that's good news. Because here's what it means. It means there's no longer anything between me and God. All those things that came between us have been removed. So much so that now the Father accepts us into his family and adopts us as his children. See how great is the love of God that God has lavished upon us that we should be called the children of God. Are you with me? And that we are, as Paul writes in Ephesians, accepted in the Beloved. You understand? In Jesus, He's the Beloved. We are accepted in Him. The same way God receives Christ, He receives me, because I'm in Christ. Here's rest for my soul. Here's rest for your soul. Amen? What a Savior. Would you agree? Let's pray. God, our Father, we are grateful for our Lord Jesus. I pray, God, that you would help us to understand these things that Christ has done for us and all that he is to us, God. I pray that you would open our eyes more and more each week that goes by to see clearly all that we have in Christ and all that he is for us. 
God, I pray more than this, that our relationship with you would grow deeper and stronger. Oh, Lord, that we would, would come to, to embrace the love that you have reached out to us with in the cross. That, Father, there at the cross, we would see the great love that you have and that we would, as the prodigal son returning, would run, God, run to, to you to be reconciled and received by you, Father. I pray, Lord, that that healing love that you have would heal the the pain of the guilt of sins that has so long loomed over us. And that, God, we would begin to grow in in our enjoyment of you and in our desire to to live a life to, to your glory, to live a life in hatred of sin and love toward you, God. Lord, that you would be our great treasure and the thing that consumes our lives. May it be, Father. We thank you for all that you are and all that you have done for us in our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his holy cross we pray. Amen.